0: This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Brain Matters. My name's Anthony Lacanina. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about one of our most basic emotions, fear. Now, Fear something we've all experienced. Whether it's seeing a spider crawl out from under our bed, or narrowly avoiding an accident on the road, or even having to give a presentation at work, these can all trigger a fearful response. But what exactly is that response, and what is its purpose? Well, in all those examples, something dangerous presented itself, such as the threat of being bit by a poisonous spider, or the potential social ridicule you may suffer if your presentation goes terribly, and our bodies react to this threat. This can take the form in many different ways depending on the context, but some of the common reactions are increased heart rate, muscle tension, and a heightened awareness of our surroundings. These physiological changes prepare our bodies to deal with the immediate threat, but what happens after the threat is removed? What do we remember about that fearful encounter, and how is that memory formed in the first place? How do our brains access and recall that memory in the future? And sometimes we're afraid of things that we don't want to be. Is there anything we can do to disrupt that fear memory? Our guest today has been asking some of these questions. Her name is Dr. Marie Monfie, and she is a neuroscientist at the University of Texas at Austin. Marie is an expert in the field of fear memories and has contributed greatly to our understanding about how fear memories are created as well as how they can be dealt with after they have been formed. To start things off, I asked Marie if she could tell us what a fear memory is and how it is different from other kinds of memory.
0: So a fear memory might be considered to be any sort of memory event that includes an emotional component that leads to a fear response. You might say one way that you might acquire it would be, say you go into an environment that's novel. And you experience something traumatic. So you go into a new store and then someone walks in and just robs the place. Mm-hmm. That would lead to potentially a fear memory.
1: Or in my case, see somebody and it's very awkward social interaction and
0: <laughs> Oh, exactly. Yeah. That would be traumatic. Very yeah. traumatic. Probably for you, but also potentially for the other person. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe the difference between fear memories and other memories is that Most neuroscientists would break down memories into two broad categories, one being explicit memories, the other one being implicit memories. And explicit memories might be something that you you can think about and that you can consciously remember. Whereas an implicit memory would be something a little bit more subtle, something that you might not have a conscious awareness of, a conscious recollection of, um, but that still exists. Whereas fear memories basically have a little bit of both instead of being just from one category or the other.
1: Okay, so there's a little bit of, I recall this event, and yet also I have some sort of feeling about this that maybe I can't even put my finger on.
0: Exactly. What
1: are, what are ways that, we, that the brain acquires a fear memory?
0: Simply speaking, basically you just have a convergence of events in the brain in usually one very important location, this structure called the lateral amygdala, And if you have information, both neutral information, but also traumatic information converging in the same area, that's where you'll have basically the formation of uh, fear memory.
1: Can you tell us just a little bit about maybe the history of fear memory?
0: There's been so much work done, I'd say, over the last hundred years. But in the early days of when people were really starting to think about brain structures that might be involved in the formation of fear memories, people put a big emphasis on the hypothalamus. So that was the work of Cannon and Bard sort of in the late 1920s. And not too long after that, well, at least, you know, a few decades, let's say, after that, McLean started to think about maybe a giant system that could account for formation of memories, and he referred to it as the limbic system. That term is still used to this day, but it's sort of, it's morphed into different directions, partly because the term limbic system was so broad and stripped of meaning, because there were too many structures that were involved in it.
1: What was he implying by the limbic system, like emotional or just fear response?
0: He was mostly going after, just broadly speaking, any sort of emotional responses. So it included structures like the hippocampus, the amygdala, the anterior cingulate cortex, a bunch of other regions that were involved in it. And it wasn't until maybe... Five or six years later, that people started to narrow down that basically one crucial area of the limbic system was mostly important predominantly important for the processing of fear memories, and that was the amygdala.
1: How did they do this? how do they how do they narrow down this target?
0: In the beginnings of neuroscience, often what people did is that they relied on case studies, and so they'd have say someone who would come in and would have a certain behavioral symptomatology. And they would look at their brains later on and say, and discover basically, oh, so this person was virtually fearless. They were very docile. They didn't really show the fear response that people would normally, you know, show in response to certain stimulus that are basically scary for everyone. And they would say, oh, but look, this person didn't have any amygdala. The amygdala was resected on both sides. So they would basically put Mm -hmm. two and two together and come to the conclusion that, well, the amygdala probably had a role to play in processing fear based on the symptomatology and the lack of the structure.
1: <laughs> Is that a good thing, you think, having no fear whatsoever? Is this fear an important response?
0: I think it'd be a terrible thing to have <laughs> no fear whatsoever. I yeah. mean, I think from a subjective perspective, you know, if you're in a situation where you've you've just experienced something that, that was really stressful, really um, fear-inducing, you might say, oh, I wish I was fearless. But If you think about your day-to-day activities, I think we'd put ourselves in harm's way very often if we didn't have fear.
1: That's very true, yeah.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's evolutionarily adaptive, and arguably you might say, well, the evidence is that basically any being on Earth currently has some sort of brain mechanisms that processes fear, Mm -hmm. and that allows them, allows us to hopefully avoid danger in a lot of situations.
1: Are these innate things or are they really learned or is it really a combination of the two?
0: It's both really. So the the basically the same system that processes innate fears is involved in processing learned fear. So you might say the same system that, you know, we've basically evolved that allows us to avoid dangerous monsters, dangerous insects that could harm us, that could poison us, is the same system that processes information if we see a gun, for instance. So inherently, you know, we don't, we're not born fearing a gun, but we learn to associate a gun with something that can cause us harm. Mm-hmm. And with very similar networks are involved in processing both types of information.
1: Could you talk a little bit about what goes on in the brain the moment a fearful event occurs?
0: Depending on how you first come in contact with the stimulus, you might say, if you see a gun, then your visual system will pick up on the information. And then Usually it would send information to the visual thalamus the lateral genic nucleus, and from there send information to to the amygdala um, if you've already learned that a gun was potentially dangerous, your amygdala would be activated very rapidly and immediately send output to the central amygdala and then to your muscle system so this comes,
1: that's coming in right from the, vi- the time the visual information is arriving. In a matter of milliseconds. So we're
0: talking, you know, if you see something, let's just say there are two not to get too too specific, but there are two different ways by which the information can go from your visual system um, to the lateral amygdala. One is directly from the thalamus to the lateral amygdala and the other one goes to the cortex, to the visual cortex and then to the lateral amygdala. And the reason why we have these two systems is that the thalamus is quite rapid, but it's not as precise. So you won't get information that's as detailed. So you might see something that resembles a gun, activates your fear system very rapidly, so next thing you know, before you really truly have this conscious, explicit notion that you've just seen a gun and that it could be a dangerous situation, your palms might be sweating, you're ready to run, and then you get information just a few milliseconds later from the visual cortex that either confirms the fact that this was actually a gun or tells you no 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 wait a second it looked like a gun it looked like a real gun, but in fact it was just a toy gun so you don't need to actually be fearful.
1: There's a, a immediate path from the it, it, I guess that's that makes sense right you, if the if the organism needs to get away from something very dangerous you want as quickly as a route from you know sensation to action exactly. So. Okay, well that's awesome that we have that. Good, good job, bodies.
0: That's right. Thank you, bodies. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Here's a. Let's take a minute to give a shout out to all of our bodies out there.
1: Bodies, you're do, doing a good job. You've kept us alive so far.
0: Thank you, bodies.
1: Is a we the first time we've seen a gun? We maybe we don't know it's dangerous, but then suddenly we see it. Sh- somebody gets shot, and then immediately we form this like fearful memory. Exactly. Is, yeah. What is what do we know about some of the like changes at a at a small level? So we know now some of the brain regions that get recruited, are there any sort of cellular changes that occur when something like when this association occurs?
0: We think that basically with most of types of memory formations, there's a change that takes place, a structural change, where you might have bigger synapses, um, stronger synapses that are being formed in that area where there's the convergence of information um, in the lateral amygdala. So you might see synaptic growth, Basically, structural plasticity changes okay. will take place that will be very long-lasting.
1: We talked a little bit about innate fear, mm-hmm. but then we can also be afraid of things that aren't necessarily dangerous, uh, like in the case of phobias, say, where um, in in some cases they are, you know, we can be afraid of heights because you could fall and, and die. Yeah, that's dangerous, but... There are also times in which we can be afraid of, uh, you know, a smell or uh, uh, be afraid of, you know, when your mom was cooking uh, something, she hit you with a spoon and now you're afraid every time of spaghetti sauce for some reason. You know, it's not.
0: Now we're sharing. Yeah. Thank you for this. I got got whacked by
1: spoons all the time for touching things, but.
0: um, No, but you're absolutely right. So basically, you can actually learn to be fearful of things that would inherently be neutral. So a stimulus that you know let's just go with the stimulus of a spoon for instance mm-hmm. or cooking so to take your example <laughs> of being hit by a spoon while your mom was cooking perhaps she was cooking spaghetti and the smell of the spaghetti sauce might have been neutral to you or even delicious um, and then that stimulus would have just entered your brain through a olfactory system and then would find its way to the lateral amygdala. And if that stimulus coincidentally, basically shortly after smelling the spaghetti sauce, suddenly a um, spoon you comes get in. Hit by a spoon. <laughs> you would learn to dislike the spaghetti sauce. And that's basically what I mean by the convergence of information, where you'd have the conditioned stimulus, the spaghetti sauce, um, that would be paired with the spoon or the hit with a spoon. That would be an unconditioned stimulus. And then later on, if you smelled spaghetti sauce, you might have some. Wariness of it,
1: the um, implicit side is going to get activated, and you smell the sauce. Then suddenly, that memory of, yeah, that memory of <laughs> the spoon hitting gets activated. Is that is that what you're saying?
0: Exactly. Right. And in some cases, you know, it can take it can take the form of a full blown um, fear episode where someone might be really upset if they smell spaghetti sauce. Um, in other cases, it might take a slightly milder form where you just you find yourself avoiding. Italian restaurants, just like, I don't know, I'm feeling uneasy about the smell of the spaghetti sauce.
1: (laughs) So let's say that happened Mm -hmm. and now I'm, I really want to eat spaghetti again. I love it. (laughs) I thought I did, but suddenly every time I try, I just, you know, I get sweaty palms and I start crying. What if, I want, what if I want to start having it again? What are ways that we can sort of like get rid of this you know, fearful response that's happened?
0: That's an interesting question, partly because if you think of the concept of getting rid of memories, that's a pretty loaded term. Without focusing too much on the idea of getting rid of memories, let's focus on maybe what people might do in order to attenuate fear memories momentarily, for mm-hmm. instance. So in the clinic, what people would do is usually um, have people undergo exposure therapy, which would be basically if you go to a therapist's office and you say, I'm really afraid of spaghetti sauce and I'd really like to enjoy it again, they might slowly introduce you to, expose you to spaghetti sauce in a safe environment <laughs> and say, here's a little bit of spaghetti sauce, how are you feeling? Just monitor you know how you're feeling in the presence of the spaghetti sauce and do this repeatedly many, many, many times. Say, here's some spaghetti sauce and then take it away from you then bring it back, say, here's more spaghetti sauce, and so forth, until basically your arousal in response to the spaghetti sauce's presence is reduced. And we call this exposure therapy in the clinic, and in basic lab research, we call it extinction. And what happens essentially is that you slowly reduce your fear or your behavioral response um, to something that you use to fear now the reason why i'm cautious in in saying that that doesn't really necessarily get rid of memories or fear memories is that we think that it engages a slightly different network so whereas before when i said that fear memories were stored predominantly in the lateral amygdala when you create or when you engage in exposure therapy what you do essentially is that you create a second memory a safe memory of the spaghetti sauce. Now the end result is that now you have two memories in your brain that are competing for expression. You have two meanings attached to the spaghetti sauce. One that says, spaghetti sauce, bad, spoon is coming, I should avoid it. The other that says, no, spaghetti sauce is safe, I'm in a therapist's office and I'm having spaghetti sauce. And when the two are competing for expression, there's always the possibility that the wrong one or the fear-inducing one will take precedence. So you might see that someone will no longer fear a spaghetti sauce in a therapist's office, but when they go out in the real world, they might become afraid of the spaghetti sauce again.
1: So it's not that original memory is sort of, it's still there. Exactly. One would like to believe that you could just go in there and you know mess with the the, the memory, get rid of it, you know, erase it somehow, but... If extinction therapy doesn't work, is there anything beyond that or any alternatives?
0: So where people are currently trying to find some of these approaches, there's another approach that seems to be promising, which is based on reconsolidation. The way that reconsolidation basically operates is that if you recall a memory, any memory, but in this case, if you're a memory, for a little while, this memory becomes malleable. So, and what do I mean by recall? Well, if you if you had this memory, this traumatic memory of the spaghetti sauce, and now you smell spaghetti sauce, those memories will come flooding back. That would mean that the memory would be retrieved. Now, for a brief period, that memory is then updatable, if you will. And people have found using, you know, basic lab experiments, mostly done in rodents, that if you give a certain chemical at this point in time, that you might be able to wipe out the memory. Now, we and others have done some work where we've tried to combine, basically, the principles of reconsolidation and extinction by seeing if we could first recall the memory, and while it's in this sensitive period, this sensitive state, then introduce new information to it to update the memory, essentially using an extinction approach or an exposure therapy approach. I like to think of it as a good example would be using the analogy of a document that you have saved on a desktop of your computer. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things that you can do. If you want to modify the document, you would open it up. Let's say the document was Anthony Spaghetti Sauce 1. You <laughs> open it up, you make a few changes, and you save it. And you can save it under a different name. You can call it Anthony Spaghetti Sauce 2. And now if you go to open your document, if you know you're in a headspace where you have a lot of time to think you might say well i want my latest document and so you selectively and carefully go to anthony's spaghetti sauce document two now if you're rushed or you're stressed and you need to go to a document really rapidly you might default to anthony's spaghetti sauce document one by mistake Mm, right so as long as you have the two documents Mm -hmm. you have you incur the chance of opening the wrong document okay and that would be the example of fear memory. And an extinction memory sort of residing side by side on your computer desktop. Now, if instead you have one document, you open it, so you retrieve it, and then you update it and save it under the same name, Mm -hmm. then you'll always open the right document, the updated document. That's essentially what we think the reconsolidation updating mechanism operates like.
1: I see. It actually changes the real document itself and doesn't form a new one on top of it. Okay.
0: Exactly. That's our hypothesis anyway.
1: So say I'm afraid of spaghetti sauce. You're, you definitely are not. Is there any way that I can sort of like pass this fear on to you?
0: Oh, yeah, actually. So fear is, you know, often we think of fears as being acquired directly through having this sort of direct negative experience with stimuli. In your case, you and the spaghetti sauce and being hit with a spoon. But fear can also be acquired by proxy or through social transmission. So, for instance, I could learn to fear spaghetti sauce if you talked at length about how terrible it is um, and, and so forth and give me basically that notion that I should be fearful of spaghetti sauce. Um, one of your siblings, if you have siblings, might have also learned to fear spaghetti sauce if they were around when you were hit with a spoon and witnessed that event. Mm. The entire world could be Fearful of spaghetti sauce now that you're broadcasting this message that spaghetti sauce is dangerous. Oh, no.
1: So, yeah, you can actually, so you don't even have to experience it yourself. You can just witness it or have somebody else tell you how terrible this, you know, if somebody comes to you. Actually, that's a good way to. You know, if somebody comes to you and say, whatever you do, don't go, you know, don't ride this bus. It's going to be really dangerous. That's right. I was told that when I came here to Austin. They're like, whatever you do, don't <laughs> get on the buses. They're just slow and awful. And I was like, really? <laughs> I got on them. They were fine. It was on time. Everything worked great. But so initially, took I, was, <laughs> I took the chance. You know, sometimes you just have to go there. It didn't cripple me. But, you know, people were giving me all this information. And so, yeah, you can sort of be wary or be afraid of something just from someone else telling you?
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, fear of flying, I think, is, is a big example of this. Okay. We hear so much about different accidents or different plane crashes occurring. And I think a lot of people are really fearful of flying, even though they've never had necessarily a negative experience with flying.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of people I've I've heard also say, you know, that I don't do this because it happened to me as a kid and this negative thing is... So do events that occur, say, during as you're juvenile or kid or something like that, are they stronger, harder to disassociate than things that happen as an adult?
0: It's a great question. The work on developmental fear is actually really limited right now. So, partly I'd say it's true. So events that can occur really early in life will have an impact on what happens in adulthood or how we process fear in adulthood, but in ways that we don't fully understand at this stage. There are some Types of memories, depending on when they might occur, that we might not have a conscious recollection of, but the, that might still affect the way that we learn information later in life. So that's research that I think is is sort of in its infancy. Ha, so to speak. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: I just laughs>
0: Thank always... you for laughing at my jokes. Yes. I just want to say this is oh. uh, this is fantastic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the um, I was just wondering because I've heard that sort of I, this happened to me as a kid. And therefore, I can't do, you know, I can't walk on the sidewalk or something like that. Uh, it seems that I was, you know, I guess that's just an intuition, but I don't know how true that is. It may not be. But
0: I mean, I think sometimes we think we remember events and they feel really, they feel real to us. They mm-hmm. feel as though they're true memories. It doesn't t- necessarily mean that they actually happened in a way that we recall them at this stage.
1: Sure. I think that happened to me as a kid I, at this point. Could be true, they could be some sort of thing i 've meshed with an idea that happened to me as a kid, and
0: exactly, or that happened to one of your friends or pictures yeah. that you've seen in yeah. your childhood.
1: <laughs> I kind of just wanted to ask how you got into studying fear learning what mm-hmm. was th- was there a uh, was there something that drove you into this field, or is it kind of uh, something you 've always been interested in
0: for a long time I was interested in in memory, and i the first lab that I joined, I studied motor learning, so that was completely different. But I remember Where flying back. To? Oh, at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. I was actually on a flight back to Alberta. From I'm originally from Quebec, and I uh, I picked up a magazine that, to read on on the plane ride, and it was I think the 1997 Scientific American version on the mind, and there was a couple of articles in there on fear memories, hmm. basic um, review articles, but I found it fascinating. And then since then I kept thinking, ah, you know, I'd love to study fear memories, even though right now what I'm studying is a little bit different. And I was learning some tools in graduate school, which I also found fascinating, but I always thought I'd like to go back and study fear memories as opposed to motor memories. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was basically the, the moment when I decided that if given the opportunity, I'd like to study fear memories. And then for my postdoc, I basically went on to, to work with the author of that article, really, <laughs> Joseph Ledoux, yeah.
1: So he, did you tell him this? That
0: no, never. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we won't, we won't let him know that this exists. Did you always know that science was something you wanted to do?
0: I was always really interested in science. I think growing up, I really didn't think of it as an option, only because it wasn't. I came from a small town where, you know, we didn't really visit labs or we weren't really all that exposed to scientists. Um, so I was you know i I read a lot and I was really excited, and I had scientific questions, I guess, but it wasn't until a little bit later that i that I discovered that you know one could work in a lab, one could get some information working in a lab in this way, and that was through one of my cousins who you know i I'm from a pretty large extended family, mm-hmm. and my cousin who went on to work at McGill for a while actually um was telling us about research on the brain mm-hmm. and At the time, I thought, wow, this is fascinating that, you know, one can do this as a career and just go and become a scientist. So I think I, you know, she was older than me, quite a bit older, and I I looked up to her and I thought, oh, this would be really interesting. So I sort of had it in the back of my mind. And when I entered university, I started to look into it and basically things fell into place. I took a neuroscience class from a teacher that I thought was really engaging, sort of fascinating. And I, I became really excited about neuroscience in general
1: do you know who that was
0: that you took away yeah it was genevieve Thur- thurlow okay i just want to give a yeah. shout out to <laughs> dr thurlow in yeah. alberta canada
1: <laughs> um did uh this do scientists run in your family
0: you have cousin um that cousin and that's it I, I think no one else in my family is a scientist
1: so do you have fun conversations with them when you see them about I, what you do.
0: I have fun conversations with them, whether they're about science or not. That mm-hmm. depends. Usually, they're not. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> could you also talk a little bit about your approach to the scientific process?
0: Hmm. I guess I tend to be really creative. So I think that you know, science has—we have a lot of different tools that we can use to answer questions now. But my, where I have the the most fun, I guess, is coming up with with different questions and. I guess I get inspiration from everything around me so I can just be walking down the street just doing something random and then I see something unfolding some sort of you know pattern of behavior and then I it gives me a question and I think oh I wonder about dot 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 and you know fill in the blank with the next experiment that I decide to run. Um, I also sometimes you know will plan a really basic experiment in the lab with plan to do something with my students and either them or me will just be watching um, what's unfolding and think this is unusual i wonder what what's driving this behavior and that becomes our next 10 experiments so i guess my my idea is to to come up with something sensible but then to always keep an open mind so of course we design experiments we have hypotheses we have theories about what might be going on or what might happen in an experiment, but I'm always open to something different. Usually if I think of it and it turns out the way that we thought it might, it's, it's a less interesting experiment. But if it gives us something completely novel, then that's when you know you're onto something that could be really interesting. Oh, there was one experiment, an early experiment that I had done when I was in graduate school. So I was working on motor learning at the time. And what I was doing is I was implanting rats with electrodes and doing in vivo recording. So while the the rats were freely behaving, I was recording field potentials from their motor cortex. And I was really, really interested in seeing like what the motor tasks that we were teaching the rats to do, what the, this would do to their network. And uh, so, you know, we'd record them at baseline, then train them to reach for banana pellets, which they absolutely loved. And for good reason. They were delicious. Yeah, did you try them? I did. And that until my... PI, Dr. Cam walked in and, just, and he said, those are not for grad students, they're too expensive, <laughs> and then I had to find something else for lunch, but <laughs> that's sort of a side story, but the rats would learn to reach for these banana pellets, and over time, after a period of training, the so they would reach from only with one, one of their paws, one of their limbs, and the other one would mostly just serve as just kind of an, an extra limb just to give them stability while they were reaching. But over time, the field potential, so the size of, you know, the synaptic activity in their brain that was contralateral to their reaching forelimb would increase in size, which we thought was interesting. And we thought, okay, well, this is similar to what we've seen in other networks. Now, what was even more interesting is that this happened only for a certain period of the training. And once the rats basically had learned at asymptote, so they couldn't get any better at reaching, that field potential went back to baseline. In other words, it was necessary only for a portion of their learning Mm. and not for the rest of the task. And that was unusual, but we thought it was a really interesting and intriguing finding.
1: You're an expert on the brain and fear. What's something that we could tell our listeners, like a, a fact or something that just surprises you day to day that you're, you know, fascinated for me I'm just like I'm fascinated that the brain just works all the time I wake up every day and I you know my vision still you know is is intact everything works pretty well surprisingly I almost imagine one day I'll wake up and suddenly all the colors will have changed and you know knowing that the brain like you know is in itself you know making all these associations that it somehow stays intact but
0: yeah You're right. I mean, it does so much. And sometimes I feel like we take it for granted a little bit. What fascinates me about it the most, I think, is how wild it it gets during sleep. The things that it does when we're not planning for it to do anything other than letting us get some rest. Like the dreams that we get. To me, that's fascinating.
1: Do you, do you enjoy dreaming and sleeping?
0: I love dreaming and sleeping.
1: I, I do too. I'm glad, I'm glad we're on the <laughs> same boat.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.